Suit Friday listeners, I'm going to go ahead and crack a beer. It's been a long day of recording ALC, but man, have we had a good time. Have we reached your threshold of uh, podcast recordings? I think we're, yeah, we're there. We're getting there? We're getting there. You going to go branded on me on this one? Uh, We'll see. We'll see. Uh, I hope to not because I still think we've got a few more things that uh, I want to talk about that I'm interested in. I I know you are, so we'll see. What are you sipping on? Uh, I got a yingling here. We yeah. ran out of everything else, I think. Right. So. I have the same. I will say uh, we did search for some East Coast or North Carolina beers at the exchange, and yeah. maybe we can talk to the skipper of ALC about changing the uh, the layout of beers. I think so. As an avid beer drinker, he should yeah. have some influence over the exchange having some microbrews. There were good beers there. I won't say there weren't good beers there, but uh, from selection standpoint for the local area, yeah. were you impressed? Zero impressed. <laughs> Very disappointed, actually. So, all right. Uh, hey, yeah, we've had such a good time. We talked to so many uh, great individuals, a lot of great engineers here at uh, ALC, and uh, kind of want to wrap this up with the uh, the penultimate guest here. We've got Captain uh, uh, Wilson. So, uh, you ready to get started? Yeah, let's do it. All right. <laughs> Captain Wilson, um, thank you so much for having us out. Uh, oh, thank you for coming. Really enjoyed having you here. Yeah, we felt, Sam and I were talking about it, we actually felt a little awkward. I felt like we got the VIP treatment, and I didn't feel like we deserved the VIP yeah. treatment. But Almost too much. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah. Come on now. <laughs> we do appreciate it. VVIP. V, oh, double V. Yeah, I mean, we were, we did get stationed together. You know, we got to serve with you in San Francisco, so. You're the bit. customer. We are the customer, I guess so. Yeah. Um, what you have here was, uh, you said this before we even started, was like, uh, you know, most people leave here over this tour eye-opening. And uh, I don't want to say, I don't want to be cliche or anything, but it was eye-opening. I didn't, I think it, from a footprint perspective for me, just how much space ALC occupies at this airport um, and the hangar space and the shop space and the additional, you know, trailers that you have that have additional shops inside of them and, and how many personnel you have working for you. It was, it was eye-opening yeah it's pretty big it was big i think a lot of people in their tour with uh you know saying something like i had no idea yeah and i think i heard you guys say something similar to that a few times multiple times yeah Yeah. oh yeah Uh, and i'll be honest i I occasionally run into something that i say i had no idea and i've been here on and off for seven years yeah Yeah. um i mean we've got a lot of wrap-up questions but uh it did uh well i guess we'll punt it right to you sir did uh we meet uh, did you? Did we get to meet everybody that you wanted us to, and kind of see that overall? Oh heck, no! In, in, no way. <laughs> okay. No, yeah. I. You know, I. In fact, I. I can't even claim that. You know, I've met everybody I want to meet here. There's 1,800 people here, and right. uh, and every one of them, you could spend a whole day learning about their world of work, and uh, you know, it would be fascinating and entertaining for anyone. I would think. I certainly for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, uh, you know, we didn't even get to every shop that I would love to show you. You know, we made, you know, one machine shop, but not the other. We didn't go see upholstery. We, you know, there's just a lot of things that we could go see a lot of avion. We didn't go see avionics shop. We didn't show you the warehouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of things we didn't, uh, find time for cause I didn't want to wear you out and, and, uh, just kind of wanted to focus on the things that interest you most and your audience most. So. Yeah. Well, he knows I'm fragile. I wouldn't have made it another day. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think that a lot of the numbers t- to me are staggering and that's kind of what stood up too. Cause uh, you mentioned the warehouse and, um, in the warehouse alone, I think you said $1.1 billion worth of parts or yeah. something similar to that. Yeah. It's like a total of 1.7, uh, overall yeah. in the fleet. And, um, 
Uh, you'll have to mention this again. You, you compared your budget to the budget of Pax River. Oh which man, yeah. there's similar. no comparison. There's no comparison, right? They're but well, I mean, they're doing a, their mission set is much much different than ours, right? Uh, and they don't they're not doing they're not an overhaul facility, uh, or you know maybe they do some of that there. I actually don't know all the things they do, but they're more than a hundred times the yeah, budget no, of ALC though. Well, right? I mean they're like four or five times the budget of the entire Coast Guard. Yeah, that that's, that's the number. <laughs> but I don't I don't know a whole lot about them. I, we've worked with them on a few things, uh, you know, and we have an acquisition going through with them right now as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, but fantastic capability for uh, the U.S. right there, mm-hmm. and, you know, at Pax River. Um, but not really a fair comparison. You you might more compare us to uh, like Cherry Point or you know a, a fleet readiness center. They do similar work to us. Okay, overhauling aircraft. You know, yeah. they do it at Cherry Point. They do the uh, B-22 and the, uh, the H-53 there. And their processes are very similar and their workforce is uh, fairly similar to ours. Uh, they have some capabilities we don't have. Um, like, they, for example, they have a foundry. We don't have one of those. Mm. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, they're about to start doing C-130s and never have. And so they're interested in coming up to learn from us. Uh, we just signed a strategic alliance agreement with, with them uh, uh, last month and look forward to getting them and their team up here because they just want to see all the things that go into uh, overall on a C-130. And mm-hmm. there's a lot. I mean, a foundry is where you make swords and battle axes. and <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> okay, got exactly. it. Yeah, I'm tracking. Uh, sir, I've, I've got a few questions for you, but I think the, the biggest one that I have, we're walking the SSR line and there's, you know, 1565s that are anywhere from arrived just from a unit and they're tearing it apart. And then I look over and I see a, a bare bone 65 with wire bundles going. And I just got to ask the question, like, how do you know that that person that you don't know their name or what they are, what their background is, how do you know that person is doing it correctly? Yeah, I, I, I appreciate you asking that because uh, when I first got back here, the second time I was stationed here, so came as CEO, I, I started kind of calling that my question zero is how do I know that we're doing that right yeah. I don't really look at an individual and say, how do I know that that individual is doing something right? But it's, it's, you know, it's the same question. And, uh, and the story I like to tell is when it first hit me that that was an important thing to ask uh, this time around was two weeks into this tour, they're telling me that they're going to build and replace a, a bulkhead that, you know, is on the, connects the uh, tail to the, you know, the empennage of the C-130. This thing is huge. This is a big piece of metal Mm. and we couldn't get it uh, from OEM, but we needed one because we found a crack. And, uh, you know, OEM was willing to sell it to us, but it was going to take a couple of years to get to us and we didn't have that kind of time. And and so, you know, the team had been working for a long time and I was the new guy and they were just making sure I was up to speed on what they were working on. And I was like, oh, hold hold up. Let me me see this again. You know, uh, you know, my internal engineer was coming out trying to stay back from the details, but, but I can't hold back from saying, Hey, that's a really big deal. What you're doing. Can mm-hmm. you, can we do get, it? You get me more comfortable. And how do I know that we're doing that right? And, uh, we really slowed down on that particular, uh, project mostly to get the new CO comfortable with what we were doing, signing off on the airworthiness on a big component like that. And, uh, you know, they did do it right. Uh, they had worked with OEM. They had the, you know, the, the drawings, designs, the processes, all the same. We're qualified for that work. And that's really what you're getting is how do we know that we're qualified for that work? We have a, you know, a lot of folks that are certified and qualified on everything from individual machinery to uh, overhaul um, 
know, from the OEM themselves for, for example, you know, main gearboxes on the 65, you know, we hold certifications for that. Uh, we have NDI people who get certified through our own school, but which is done in conjunction with uh, other uh, NDI process, uh, um, schools and to a national standard. Uh, so it's, it's a really big question uh, and you'd have to go really, you know, this would be a really, really long answer to get into every one of those things, but we qualify everything that we know that we're comfortable qualifying. We ask for third party review of everything uh, else. And, you know, it's, it's kind of how an engineering firm works and we do a lot of it. Uh, everything from like, you know, is the engineer qualified to design and approve that thing? And is, uh, the mechanic or machinist qualified on the equipment they're using to do it? It's a, it's a big thing. Yeah, it, it really is. And we got to see it, um, firsthand and it's complex. It's not as simple as a, a, a black and white, um, and I think we talked about a little bit, even as operators, like we find ourselves in that realm all the time of like, well, what's the most conservative thing? Most conservative thing is you say no to the mission and you, and you don't do it and you, and you never right. take off. Um, as opposed to the, the opposite side of that is you take off and you don't talk about ORM or the risk or the gain and you just recklessly go off and cross your fingers that, that nothing happens. And, you know, hopefully we find ourselves some, somewhere in the middle of that and, and we're making smart decisions based off analysis and, and things that you guys have known right. and taught and trained to do. Yeah. I like how you talk about the, the most conservative thing. And did you talk to uh, SRR about the, uh, you know, the uh, hoist cables example? Mm-hmm. We did. Yeah, yeah. That's a great example of, you know, the most conservative thing is to replace it every time. Yeah. Uh, until you've done the engineering to figure out how to do the repair correctly. And then that is also a conservative method. Once you've done the engineering until yeah. you've done that, and decided that it's safe and you're certified and you have an audit perspective or uh, ability you know, to, to make sure that folks are qualified to do their work until you've done that. It is not conservative at all to, you know, cut and swatch the, uh, the cable mm, to yeah. continue using a shorter version for a little while. But I still don't know what swatch yeah, means, put the little, but little ball at the end. Okay. Nice. Swage. <laughs> um, what does it mean to you as the CEO to be for these aircraft to be airworthy, and and how do you play a role in that decision? Because everything that comes out of this uh, facility, like we stamp it as, right. hey, this is this is worthy of, of flying, and our crews yeah. can go fly this safely. Yeah. So uh, CFRs allow any government agency in the U.S. to provide for their own airworthiness, and that is kind of a it's kind of left at that, and so every. Every government agency has to make a decision. So, you know, Department of, say, Energy, they fly helicopters. You know, they go, you know, you know for surveys and, yeah. But they don't provide for their own airworthiness. They use FAA airworthiness, which means they have to fly within the FAR uh, part whatever is appropriate for the mission set that they're doing. Mm-hmm. They can't go outside of those bounds. But there is no part of the FAR that tells you how to safely hoist someone from the surf, right? There, There's no far part for what you do what we do, right? right. Yeah. So how do we manage that? So uh, that word airworthiness uh, was uh, confounding some of our executives and, uh, and we re- worked really hard over the last couple of years to figure out how to do, do a better job of telling, us, telling everybody what we mean by that word. Mm-hmm. And what we came up with is uh, a little bit of an analogy that I think most folks can relate to. Uh, you know, you're gonna go uh, fly on, you know, uh, some commercial airliner here in the US and you're walking onto a 737 and you don't much think about 
whether that plane's safe or not, right? But if you did, why would, why do you think it's, why do you not think about that? Why are you comfortable with that? If you did have a passing thought about it, you'd probably think, well, you know, there's a giant regulatory body mm -hmm. backed by the U.S. government that is managing that aircraft's safety, mm -hmm. right? The FAA. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that the airways are managed by air traffic controllers that are qualified and certified in their work and have recency requirements and all those things, right? We don't think about these things when we jump on the plane, but if you did, you'd say, well, who who did the maintenance on the plane? Well, I know that they have an A&P, if you know what, you know, some of your audience may not be in the aviation industry, may not know what that is, but that is the certification that, that allows uh, a mechanic to do work on aircraft, right? And you're comfortable with, with that because you have confidence in the FAA holding some standards on those people. And then their work was checked by NIA and the aircraft uh, manufacturer had to prove to the FAA that their maintenance plan for this aircraft would keep that aircraft safe even when it went out, you know, for however many years doing the mission set it was set for, right? And with C, to, C checks and D checks and all those things, right? All those thoughts don't really happen. But if you really dig into it, you'd go, yeah, I'm comfortable with all those things. And I kind of know some of those, you know, that giant system of systems is keeping that aircraft safe. Yeah. Well, like I said, no one's doing that for us. Uh, <clears throat> there is no, I mean, we could, we could ask the FAA to do it as a, you know, U.S., government, we could, we'd ask the FAA to do this, this workforce. And they'd say, all right, well, we increase our budget a whole bunch and we'll have an office that manages that for, uh, doing surf rescues, but that isn't really an efficient way to do it. We can do it ourselves. Right. So that's what we do. And that's most of what I just described is replicated, uh, inside this fence line. Um, mm -hmm. us and ATTC, you know, together are just like you are providing for the, uh, airworthy pilots, uh, at ATC, we're doing that here. ATCC is making sure that the equivalent of the A and P is done uh, across the way there. And here we are doing not the equivalent of a C and D check because that wouldn't be nearly enough, right? The H yeah. sixty uh, five is a great example. You know, we're we're really close to forty years of flying that thing. Nothing, nowhere near what it was designed to fly. You know, the mission said it was flied made, made for us. You know, flying uh, executives from you know their house in the Hamptons to their you know, tall building in Manhattan and maybe go to the Wall Street pad or whatever, right? For about 10 years or 20 years, uh, about 10,000 hours, right? Really easy flying. Mm -hmm. uh, not, I mean, not anything like what we do with it. Like yeah. sticking on the back of a 210 yeah. for 70 yeah. days. 70 days, exposed to by salt water, yep. uh, landing on. How many times do you think a given airframe does uh, rescue hoists, you know, with a rescue swimmer and a, uh, and a dummy? You know, yeah. and you're, they're coming in the inside the cabin full of salt water. Yep. Yeah. So you have Chief Kirkendall coming up where you feel the helicopter like <laughs> go another like four degrees right wing down. Yeah. yeah you and you know, see the like, water rushing yeah. back out the door after yeah. he gets in uh -huh. and, you know, his wetsuit drains yeah. and, and, you know, maybe has a live, uh, you know, duck with him that yeah. day. And so the two of them, and you might do, I don't know, an airframe could see 40, 50 of those in a single given day, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine how long your, you know, your Honda Accord would last if you brought a surfer in directly from yeah. the sea. <laughs> you know, that yeah, wouldn't times. smell good. That's yeah. for sure. And, and your floorboards would be gone in, yeah. you know, a number of days, right? That's so, always yeah. a weird one. Like when you transition forward and there's literally like three inches yeah, of salt to your pedals. Yeah. yeah, right? Yeah. So, so there is no, you know, OEM did not come up with a maintenance plan for managing that. We did, yep. right? Collectively over generations, we did. And it's amazing. And, oh yeah, we... We left out Hitron. On top of all that, shooting 50 cows in that 
You know, that's yeah. a high impact for that airframe. It wasn't designed for that. Nope. nope. And OEM didn't design a maintenance plan to manage that. Mm -hmm. And we had to do that. Uh, and it took a lot, a lot of very smart people over generations to make it right. And uh, we've had a lot of improvements over the years. Um, but look at the, uh, the airframe now. I, I mean, you saw it yourself. What do you think? Uh, is that plane getting overhauled? Let me ask it this way. Is the overhaul deeper than you thought it was? I was amazed to see what a 65 looks like when it has nothing on it. Yeah. yeah. I was, didn't expect to see that. I, you know, I looked at one of the hulls and it had absolutely everything stripped out of it. And I was like, that thing's not going to fly again. How is that right. an airframe that can I mean, even the nine degree together? frame is out. And yep. the, you know, the Absolutely greenhouse is off the whole, mm -hmm. you know, it's down to, I mean, it's not, some people say it's like a frame off restoration of a car. No, it's like, not only did you take everything off the frame, but you took the frame apart Yeah, yeah. and you replace components of the frame, right? It's, it's deeper than that. And, and that is what it takes to make that aircraft last. Well, I think the other part too, years. that, um, um, we were here in, in, uh, Commander Korea was telling us was with pulling all the wires out of that aircraft specifically too, gets you the ability to replace parts that you've never been able to replace before yeah. because you can't get to them with all the wires in there. Yeah. Um, the, and, uh, the normal depots on that every four years, you know, they come through this, uh, overall and, and they, uh, it would take something like 80% of the wires out over the years. It changed whether it was an alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta model. It was not, it was never a hundred percent replacement mm -hmm. of wires. And in fact, uh, you know, just 10 years ago, we were looking at some of the wires were original to the airframe, which is not abnormal in an airframe's life. Uh, you know, but these were, uh, you know, some smaller 14 gauge wires that were in some pretty wet spaces and were original to the airframe. Uh, and that might be, is probably the source of a lot of the gremlins that your, yeah. your crews have been chasing all these years. Uh, but with the echo upgrade, uh, we had a, we had to do the structural modifications, you know, nine degree frame and a few other things had to be replaced uh, for the structural slip. And then we were doing this huge avionics refresh, you know, that, you, you know, make putting the new cockpit in and that was all driven by obsolescence, but had to, so it had to happen. Uh, but the combination of those two things was going to get us really close to hundred percent rewire anyway. And the last bit of wire coming out um, made the, all the difference, uh, you know, 10 years ago, that plane was uh, barely passing the Tempest test and, you know, uh, uh, electronics um, tests were right. it was just it was, the E3 testing was just terrible, just among the worst in the inventory. And now it passes uh, just like any other modern aircraft. It's built now with modern wires to a modern standard and it has very little uh, leakage, RFI leakage or, or anything like that. I mean, it's. Can we go land on a uh, Navy destroyer without having them turn off their super huge radar system that uh, <laughs> will cause us to have FADEC lights and all sorts of other gremlins? Coming I don't know. Now? Uh, you may want to ask them to do that anyway, but uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for future Hafensteiner uh, family, yeah, I got it. Um, so we had seen in the sixty-five community specifically a, a decent reduction in our program flight hours uh, with how the gearboxes were uh, not, you know, not coming off the line. We weren't getting enough uh, gearboxes from the manufacturer. Is that something that you talk with? 7-Eleven specifically and try and target a number for a reduction that helps you meet uh, your own pr production levels or, and do you factor in safety of operators and like proficiency or anything like that? Like how does that uh, process work? Yeah, and are yeah. you involved it's in that? It's definitely a long, hard negotiation and uh, uh, nobody on any end of that conversation was taking anything lightly. 
that was that was uh, a very difficult discussion, uh, and I wish. Uh, well, I'll tell you, uh, ALC is extremely well tied to their program. Mm-hmm. Forty one being our program, we are very very tight with them. They handled that with Seven Eleven. That negotiation with our end of the negotiation was if you get to a lower number of flight hours uh, on each of the airframes, we can make these main gear boxes last until we can work with OEM to get them healthy again in mm-hmm. producing them. Mm-hmm. And I'll describe that in a moment to you, how that part of it went. That was more our, our end of it uh, at ALC. But 41 was working with 7-Eleven. Well, 7-Eleven was negotiating on your behalf saying, well, no, but the fleet needs to be uh, you know, proficient. Uh, we can't do that low of a number for that long. And of course, we too, the engineers, we are also operators at heart and we respect that and understand that. And it's, that is a hard negotiation to have because we feel your side and they feel our side and it's not even us and them. It's, it's, we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a lower number that we were shooting for from a logistics and engineering perspective. Uh, and 7-Eleven was shooting for a higher number for a proficiency and safety perspective. And we got closer to, the, to their number than our number. Uh, but it still gave us enough room and enough negotiation power with OEM to say, you've really got to get your act together. You got to be delivering uh, the main gearbox housings, which was the one component that was the real problem. You got to deliver new ones to us at a rate higher than our scrap rate. Uh, The the, uh, corrosion that these things are seeing is really, really rough on that uh, magnesium. Mm -hmm. So anyway, the the main gearbox housing was an, uh, an engineering problem uh, and a logistics problem rolled into one. Uh, we were preserving them as, as well as we could, uh, working with the fleet to take better care of them, to make them last. Uh, but at the end of the day, we needed OEM to be giving us about 1.2 on average per month mm-hmm. of new ones because that was about that was a, a little bit more than our scrap rate. We were trying to get healthy, and uh, they just couldn't quite get there. I mean, these things are sand cast magnesium, which is a, a method that just isn't practiced anymore. And the, you know, the newer generation of, of, uh, artisans out in, uh, in Europe. There he's, it is. There's that word. To, he's trying to trigger me. He's, okay. We'll, we'll, right we'll circle back to that. Yeah, we'll circle back to that. Um, <laughs> anyway, they, uh, they, they had a high scrap rate when they were making new ones and, um, and they're getting better and working with us. And meanwhile, we had to make the ones we had last. And so mm. they'd come back for overhaul and they'd have corrosion on them. You know, we grind off the finest amount of material to see how deep that corrosion is. Look at it again. If it still had some, grind off the finest, you know, another little layer. You were talking about thousands at a time. Uh, and then as long as there, as long as we get past the corrosion and there's enough material left for the min spec, uh, code it, put it back in service. And, uh, and we had... Uh, about a 75% success rate on saving gearboxes and about 25% of them, the corrosion was just too deep. And uh, we have a lot of very fancy equipment and very highly skilled people uh, working on that stuff, machinists working on that stuff to to save as many as we could. Artisans. Artisans. And um, anyway, uh, between the two of us, OEM and us, and a great partnership, we were able to get uh, healthy again and give the hours back to the fleet. And, uh, and I would say that main gearboxes are turning a corner now or have recently turned a corner. So yeah, we're, I think uh, we were talking to Tom, <clears throat> the, the lead in your machine shop that's doing all the gearboxes. Yeah, I, yeah. I think he said there were like five or six on the shelf in supply. They were trying to yep. churn out, was he saying, two, two a month to go back to the product line and put on aircraft and then two more to send back to supply. So just a constant increase yep. in, in gearboxes, which is awesome. But 
I got I to gotta hear your question about artisans there. <laughs> well, Maybe. yeah, Cap, we Captain Wilson knew ahead of time that I don't necessarily agree with the word artisans because what do we think of when we hear the word artisans? I could have plopped down a Subway sandwich that's, oh, you know. really? The, that's what you think of? That's yeah, not what I think of. because they're artisans. They call yeah. themselves sandwich artisans. And He's so, thinking of Tartine in uh, San Francisco making beautiful <laughs> bread. <laughs> no, I'm telling of. you, this like sloppily sandwich put together. <laughs> man, now you're taking, the table. At, taking shots at Subway too. Yeah, man. come on, man. Oh, Subway can take some hits here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just think it's it's a very interesting, we're out, technicians, <laughs> love it. Machinists, sound good. Right. Um, but I thought it was funny. The uh, So I guess uh, the place you see those words is, is, or that word is when we send teams out to do work, usually, right? We send a team of artisans out to a place to help out a unit, right? Okay. And But they're not all machinists, and they're not all mechanics, and they're not all electricians, they're not all technicians, Right. That is, I, I mean, I agree. It is a kind of a funny sounding <laughs> word. I get it, but I don't know of a better word. Yeah. They're creating art. Field, I like f the field team, you know? that. Yeah. And we do that. We say that I as like well. That uh, but I the just, individual, you know, I asked, you know, it's funny that I knew you were coming. And uh, <laughs> so I've asked two different groups uh, about that word. I asked yeah. uh, the incoming class of warrant officers, hey, what do you think about that? Because these folks came up yeah. as, you know, tradespeople. And uh, I was like, what word do you like to describe yourself? Like generically, you know? And of course, you know, the AMTs are like mechanic and the electrician is like, no man, technician or whatever. Right. Yeah. And, uh, I was like, but no, but collectively, what are you? Tradespeople, craftsmen, what word do you like? And, uh, artisan, they're like, they, they kind of didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. But then I asked, uh, uh, a machinist if he liked the word mechanic and he was like, are you kidding me? That and was, that was the end of the conversation. That was yeah. basically an insult. Yeah. Yeah. I did test that okay. on one of your machinists. Oh, yeah. He didn't punch me in the face. So it was, was a little bit more of a safe space for me. Yeah. Um, you've been skipper for two years here now, sir, yeah. right? Um, is ALC where you want it to be? And uh, where do you envision it to be in the future? Yeah, it's good timing. Uh, my boss is coming tomorrow and he wants to have the same conversation. Oh, okay. <laughs> New boss. Yeah. Uh, Kevin McGilly just took over 41 and he says, well, you know, let's, let's talk about where we want to take uh, ALC next. And, uh, and that's great. Is it where I want it to be? Of course not. No, we're always getting better. Uh, it's huge point of pride around here is we're constantly, uh, and incrementally improving. Um, and you can really see it when you go away for a few years. Uh, I was here 10 to 14, uh, and then hardly came back at all until uh, like 17 or no, 18 or 19. And I could see it immediately. To me, it was so obvious that everything, every process was a little more polished. You could see it on the floors, uh, the way things were arranged. Everything just looked a little better. And it wasn't just like rosy glasses of being back home. It was, yeah. it, it was, it was really noticeable to me. But I don't think that the folks who were here that whole time could really see it themselves um, because they're always striving for the next thing. They're always like, man, if we could only just get this one thing, one thing, one thing, one thing, one thing more, one thing a little bit better. And I really love that about them. But I always want to remind them that I wish you could see through my eyes how far you've come. Mm -hmm. uh, I always like to tell the story of like, you know, back in the 90s when they would take apart an H65, um, they would just take the parts off and set them on the ground. And it was essentially like a little pile or a big pile of, of you know, parts and components and cowlings and whatnot, kind of not really haphazardly, but they were definitely on the floor of the hangar. Mm -hmm. We don't have that now, right? Everything comes off and has a place it goes in a pre-built box or a foam cutout or whatever. Everything is, I mean, that is a huge difference. Mm -hmm. um, 
but there are other, you know, more subtle things about business processes that uh, will put your audience to sleep, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, years ago, when I was here before, the, uh, the paint uh, booth was the huge choke point for everything. And if one of the product lines missed a paint date, I mean, there was, there was hell to pay because mm-hmm. it messed everybody up. Everybody was, because that was the constraint for everyone. And uh, missing a paint date would mess us up for months. And so uh, trying to orchestrate when, you know, negotiate paint dates was basically a bloodbath mm-hmm. because everyone was fighting for this one resource. Now, six years later, I come back and that is no longer the case at all. So much so that we have occasionally had capacity in the paint booth to help out non-aviation paint jobs. Not not often, but yeah. we've done a little bit. Yeah, Like that's that would have been unheard of. Like that blew me away. I was like, did we add a new paint booth? Did we add capacity? No, yeah. we didn't add any capacity. We orchestrated all the product lines together using some really good uh, hard work by everybody involved uh, to develop some information systems uh, to to make it all work together. Yeah, the paint job on your GV is really nice. <laughs> <laughs> I was afraid you're going to say my Jeep. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to inspect that later. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, it's it's really it has come a long way. Where do I want it to go in the future? Right. Uh, um I that that's really good. I we've been through a lot of big structural changes in the in the workforce just recently, you know, uh LRS is now um you know, a workforce trident uh, and doing their own program and government program management of the C-130 overhaul. It's huge change in the way they do things. So, so like using them as an example, they've just gone through this enormous change in how their workforce is structured. I'm going to let them be for a little bit. I let the the next CEO or next visionary come in, uh, in a little bit. I'm going to leave them alone and kind of let them get, uh, more ingrained or, uh, you know, incorporate more ALC processes, uh, and get themselves right. Um, mm. Uh, but there are other, you know, you look at each product line and you're like, well, or s- shared service division and, you know, where would I like to see them go next? Uh, ISD is a great example. I think you got to talk to, uh, Katrina, our newest deputy, mm-hmm. uh, today. Um, I, I like that they've just restructured and, uh, and have taken in, uh, the, all the logistics systems for, uh, all of, uh, the Coast Guard, in fact, you know, the Naval engineering and civil engineering information systems are now in their portfolio. Uh, so with them, I'm not going to give them time. I'm going to keep the pressure on that. They need to make them all. And they have made them all cyber compliant, give them all to modern databases, uh, and then make them the same where they can find places where, uh, they can all be the, the same. And so you will see, uh, very soon some big changes in for you as an aviator, it'll just look like, uh, the front page of EAL will look different, but it's, it's a wholesale change where we're going to get more closely coordinated with the civil and naval engineers. Uh, and I think that's the future for us uh, is how how can we better access their strengths and how can they access our strengths? So we have great uh, additive manufacturing capabilities here. You saw the 3D printers. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, high temp and low temp uh, plastics, and we've got now the metal 3D printer, right? Mm-hmm. Well, how can uh, SFLC access that? capability. Right now it, they'd have to call us and it'd be complicated. They should just be able to put in a work order, right? And they should be using the same work order system as we use. Mm-hmm. And it should just show up like they need this thing 3D printed and whoever has the ca- capacity and capability should it should just show up in their queue and that work should get done and it gets ships where shipped to wherever it needs to get shipped to, right? Right. So that's where I, I think the future is for us is closer coordination with the uh, other logistics centers and C5I service center. 
to find a way for all the logistics centers to access each other's capabilities and capacity okay. a little bit more. Yeah. Um, I do have one more <clears throat> question. Um, I don't know, about a year or two ago, there was an article that came out that said, uh, you know, the, the future of the 65 is bright. And uh, I'll be honest, like right now, that's kind of a punchline that's being used in wardrooms, some maintenance controls. You go to sign for an aircraft and it's PMC for something. You're like, okay, it's not going to affect the mission. You go out and s something happens. You come back in and like, that's the joke. Like what happened? You're like, oh, don't worry. The future of the 65 is bright. Yeah. Like what, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, I, I hear it. Uh, and uh, I remember you know, when I was in the fleet, not that long ago, hearing that stuff then too. And, and so some level of that's always going to exist. Uh, but when I hear it now, I take it very seriously. I want to go look at this, the roots of that question and make sure that, uh, if there's something there, we can work on it. Uh, but I'll, I'll stand by what I told you, uh, Kenny earlier is the H 65 is, is more airworthy now than it ever has been in its history. Mm -hmm. I know that what you're focused on is, you know, component reliability or some PMC time. And I, I don't want to like sound like I'm sweeping that aside. That is a real concern looking at it. I, I hear you loud and clear, but the plane is safer than it's ever been. I mean, if you look all the way back in its history, you know, we don't have a solid PT wheel exploding. You know, the engines are not a threat anymore. And the engine control system is no longer a threat. We got the turbo mech is on the, uh, the gremlins you've been chasing for years. You're going to see, I mean, we're still at the beginning of the Echo's life cycle, but you're going to see that the Gremlins are going to be going away quickly. We're going to get better at troubleshooting, and you're going to have fewer problems to, to manage there. But I think that uh, the components you're probably seeing are probably, what, yaw channels mm -hmm. and uh, maybe, you know, hoist cables. Um, so if you focus on any one problem and throw enough energy engineering at it, you can get rid of that problem, right? So the AFCS is a great example of, we wanted to update that in the uh, Echo uh, model avionics upgrade. We're not, not able for a variety of reasons in acquisitions and, and uh, relationship with the OEM. We weren't able to get there on that one, but um, but we can apply some other technologies to it. I think uh, uh, Buck told you a little bit about how we're using thermal imaging to uh, simulate those failures or replicate those failures and see what component internal to the AFCS is actually failing. At the end of the day, it's it's an analog computer, not a digital computer. It's an analog computer. So when things fail, there's a heat bloom. And we can look at that and say, all right, there it is. It's that capacitor right there, that transistor right there, whatever the case may be, that is failing. And we can do what's called 2M micro miniature uh, repairs and replace those individual uh, components inside of those boxes. So we have there. – there's a future there where we can solve those problems, but uh, – they're all hard problems and they all take time. Uh, but I think the future is in fact bright for the H65. And, uh, and I know that a lot gets said about, uh, you know, it's, it's end of life is coming. You know, it feels like it's right around the corner. Well, that's compared to the 40 years it's already been serving. Mm -hmm. It has at least 15 more, which most aircraft are designed for 10 years, right? That's kind of the norm. We're talking about 150% of what is considered a normal aircraft's life left mm -hmm. in these airframes. So for just a little perspective, we'll yeah. keep flying it. Well, it'll make 55 years. Yeah. At, uh, what, at what point is the future not bright for the 65? And I only say that because uh, I, I believe, I truly believe after going through SRR that, you know, the 65 is built out uh, extremely well and it's uh, completely airworthy and safe, but... 
at some point we're not flying that aircraft anymore. So at one point do we recognize as a service that like, yes, there is no more future for the 65. Well, I think we have, right? I mean, we've made the decision we're going to a 60 fleet, but it's, it's a long way from now and we're going to do it uh, at a controlled rate Mm -hmm. uh, of our choosing. When is the future not bright for the 65? When we say so. Okay. Uh, Without a doubt, we know what the future looks like and we're going to drive ourselves there. It'll be a negotiation. We'll do one unit at a time and, and eventually, you know, the, the thing I hear a lot is eventually it's only doing the special missions and, and but 60 could eventually do those as well too. But, but that, you know, getting 65s off the line is not because they're no longer safe. It's because we just need some parts. Uh, so some mm-hmm. of these units that we're replacing early on is because we need to put some parts on the shelf. Yes, sir. Uh, can't get them anymore. Uh, we can do a lot of, you know, we can build a lot of these things, but not all of these things. I mean, uh, two years ago, you uh, traded your allegiance to the uh, Mighty 60 (laughs) from the 65, which you flew for your career. But uh, uh, in that vein, do you think, uh, are you excited about the 60 uh, and the the coming future for potentially a single rotary wing fleet? Well, I mean, that's that's pretty far ahead of us. But uh, I am, those are two different things. Yeah, I I enjoy the 60. It's fun to fly something new, different. Uh, Flying's flying, though. It's, It's heavier but it has more power. So it's just more inertia that you're managing and mm-hmm. uh, the maneuvers, you know, are a little different. Uh, it's fun learning something new. The The cockpit was a, a new thing for me. I'd, I'd never got the echo qual. So, uh, so doing cast was uh, different for me that, you know, I stumbled on that a little bit has nothing to do with my age. Uh, <laughs> but, um, uh, but I got there and uh, you know, the air conditioner is nice and having fuel mm-hmm. is nice. Uh, did a, uh, a delivery up to Kodiak. It was a fantastic flight and was able to do some long legs and not have to, you know, sweat every, every... You weren't negative bingo when you took yeah, off? Yeah, no, yeah. Every time you take off, I was not sweating fuel every minute of the way. And uh, and that's a fun, nice uh, uh, perk. Uh, but, I, you know, I won't lie. I missed the 65 too. Yeah. Uh, and uh, would have enjoyed flying any of the Coast Guard aircraft. It's yeah, But it's fun to learn something new. Yeah, that's great. What else you got, Kenny? Anything to wrap it up here? I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, anything else that, uh, that you want to speak to the the fleet listener you know the junior co-pilot out there or the you know in leadership position about the airframes that you have sure. everybody flying uh, i appreciate the opportunity uh and uh like i said the other day when we talked i i really enjoy that you do the uh you know what do you what's your advice for the young pilot and uh you know obviously a lot of things i'd say about career uh if anyone wants to, to talk about that stuff Glad to take uh, calls from any uh, pilots out there. I offer myself as uh, a career counseling if anyone is interested in what I've done and, and where they're headed and all that. But uh, but I will say this uh, from a strictly flying perspective uh, that's a little bit different than some of you know what you've heard. Um, uh, when you're studying systems or even maneuvers, um, don't be afraid to get out the NPCs for that system and try to understand them. Reading mm-hmm. NPCs and, uh, isn't as step-by-step as you think. It takes a lot of intuition uh, and it's good for pilots to get those out. You know, that test flight card isn't inherently obvious uh, every step of the way. You know, when you're doing, for example, pedal turns with and without AFCS in that aircraft, why? Mm -hmm. Why are you doing that? Mm -hmm. Uh, And it may not be obvious when you go do that, but you need to know that beforehand or else what are you checking, you know? Uh, So when you're studying the AFCS as a new pilot, get out the MPC, get out the test flight card, get out the remove install card uh, and go see a QA or a maintenance chief or somebody and talk through that card with them to come to a better understanding of the system. 
from that perspective, which isn't the same as block diagrams of how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, when it's, when you read that remove install card, you'll see what it's connected to. Uh, and then ask yourself, why is it connected to that? You know, uh, I don't know. There, uh, that was a lot of different thoughts all at once, but uh, the idea is, uh, you know, there are a lot of resources out there for you. Don't hesitate to use them. Uh, and I know the crew would love to have you out on the hangar deck looking at, you know, things from their perspective. Yeah. Always continually learning. Absolutely. You know, whether you choose to do it externally and, and, and go, you know, to grad school or whatever, or if you're purely focused on, on aviation and you're just going to continually learn, like there's so much to learn out there and you should never stop learning. So, yeah, that's um, good. Great. Well, uh, sir, thank you again. Uh, we really appreciate you having us here, uh, at ALC and it's been a, uh, an eye opening visit, just like you said it was going to be. Uh, and I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I think I do have one more thing to say. Um, you, you said it earlier, Captain, and you even said it when you gave us our, the one-on-one brief of like, you know, the 65 is more airworthy than it, than it ever has been. And I'll prove it to you. And, and we got to see all that, all the aircraft. And I, I've been thinking about that and it's like, do I have more confidence in the aircraft um, after being here? And the answer is no, but I think that's because I have a hundred percent confidence in the aircraft Bef- before I got here. Mm-hmm. I think what it's, given me is it's, it's armed me with information and, um, just, just seeing all the processes here, it arms me with the ability to talk to someone else that says, I don't have confidence in the aircraft. And it's like, okay, let's pull on that string a little bit. Why, why don't you, do you know what's going on? Um, do you even understand the process? How can you say you don't believe in something if, if you've never seen it? And so, yeah, anyone that has a chance to, to come to ALC, absolutely. I, I, I would jump on it because it, it was eye opening and I loved it. Yeah, just just need the uh, the pool to get fixed so we can start coming here for dunker training again. Yeah, just a pair of that with an ALC <laughs> visit. Yeah, yeah, awesome. So, thank well, you. Well, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Really enjoyed having you guys here. I, uh, you know, you keep commenting on you know getting the VIP treatment and whether you deserve it. Or not. I would give that to every pilot I could. I, I love your uh, podcast and I think this is a good way to reach as many as I can uh, through you guys. So I appreciate you putting out those good words and uh, and spending the time with us. Uh, I hope you got everything you wanted out of it. Yeah, yeah enjoyed showing you around. Thanks, Thanks Kevin. Kevin.